Heavenly Father, we know uh, from our experience that people uh, flourish under good leaders, but languish under bad ones. And today, we ask that you will teach us to be a people who are in glad submission to your leadership, to your good management, that we might live with the fear of the Lord, with carefulness in all of the spheres of our lives. Speak to us as you always do. We incline our hearts, our ears toward you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Proverbs chapter 14, starting in verse 15, going to Proverbs 15, verse 4. The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. A man of quick temper acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. The evil bow down before the good, the wicked at the gates of the righteous. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Do they not go astray who devise evil? Those who devise good meet steadfast love and faithfulness. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. A truthful witness saves lives, but one who breathes out lies is deceitful. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. In a multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without people a prince is ruined. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. But envy makes the bones rot. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing. But the righteous finds refuge in his death. Wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding. But it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. Righteousness exalts a nation but sin is a reproach to any people. A servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath falls on one who acts shamefully. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commands knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue, is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. This is God's holy and authoritative word. There are some things that uh, people uh, only do because they know no one is watching, right? 
Um, and after a dozen or so cases of, of mail package theft at our condo, uh, our condo association is now talking about um, installing a security camera uh, in the lobby because we know that if there is a security camera, people know that they will be seen, people know that they will be caught uh, if they steal, and so they don't. Uh, similarly, parents who are perhaps berating their kids in public uh, in a harsh way, will moderate their tone as soon as they recognize that there are people watching them. Um, dog walkers, right, who are not going to bother picking up that poo on the neighbor's lawn, uh, as soon as they see the eyes peering through the window, will quickly pick up that poo, right? Uh, it's, that's what we call accountability. Uh, when we know that we will be held accountable we modify our behavior and speech accordingly. Uh, and Proverbs, this passage that we read, 14, 15, 15, 4, teaches that, that this is a key to wise living, uh, to live under the watchful eyes of God. And uh, knowing that we are accountable to God for all our actions and speech constrains our behavior and speech, helps us to live wisely. And the main point is that by living carefully under the watchful eyes of God, the wise find life for themselves and give life to others. Uh, That's what happens when you live under the watchful eyes of God. In verses 15 to 18 of chapter 14, we see uh, the teachings about personal carefulness, what this looks like in your own life, um, in in your own decisions. Um, And uh, chapter 14, verses 19 to 24, speak of kind of socioeconomic carefulness, what this looks like, what being living under the watchful eyes of God as you relate to others in a social economical sense. Uh, and then finally, chapter 14, verse 25 to chapter 15, verse 4, speak of kind of a political, legal carefulness, what that looks like in politics, uh, in, uh, in the court, uh, in, uh, when you live under the watchful eyes of God. So let's first look at personal carefulness in verses 15 to 18 together. Uh, This subunit is bracketed by the contrast of the simple and the prudent. Verse 15 says, The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. Similarly, verse 18 says, The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. So the simple uh, is, the term simple, as we have seen throughout Proverbs, is not a positive designation uh, in the book of Proverbs, although there is something to be commended for godly simplicity. Uh, This is referring to people who are gullible or naive, uh, people who are thoughtless and careless in their uh, life. And and because of this, the simple are especially vulnerable to being duped by evildoers. And and throughout Proverbs, these simple people are exhorted to heed instruction and learn prudence or shrewdness. uh, Because if and only when they learn that prudence will they stop being simple. And this reminds us, again, that the world is full of competing ideologies and worldviews and even moral principles. And people are driven by various competing interests and influences. And for these reasons, it is foolish to believe everything. Instead, we must give thought to our steps. When we walk through a bridge that has gaps in it, we give thought to our steps lest we step into the void and fall. And likewise, the world is beset with many false steps that can be taken. And so we must give thought to our steps. Verse 18 continues that same contrast between the simple and the fool. It says, The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. 
This is an ironic statement because usually when we think of inheritance, it's something that is desirable, something you look forward to getting. You inherit something that benefits you. Uh, however, in this verse, it says the simple inherit folly. Uh, before they were only simple, naive, or gullible, but now they are full-blown fools. Um, their careless simplicity is rewarded with folly. And in contrast, the prudent are crowned with knowledge. They were already shrewd. They were already knowledgeable, yet they're crowned with further knowledge because of their discernment, um, because they have been knowledgeable and careful. And these two verses, a bracket, verses 16 to 17 in the middle, uh, which together expound on the folly of the simple. Uh, verse 16 says, One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. Um, so the phrase, one who is wise is cautious. So if you're looking at um, the English Standard Version, uh, there's probably a footnote right next to that phrase. Uh, if you follow that phrase down, uh, it tells you that it could be translated, one who is wise fears. That's what it literally says. One who is wise fears. Uh, and some of the translators took that to mean, meaning you're fearful or cautious of other things. Um, but I think that actually means something a little more literal. I think that's an example of ellipsis, where one or two words... Uh, one or more words are omitted from a sentence and assumed. So you're supposed to supply that to get a complete meaning. Uh, I think that means it, this verse is saying, one who is wise fears the Lord. I think that's the assumption. One who is wise fears the Lord. That's exactly how the NIV, for example, translates it. Uh, and this is uh, all the more likely because there are other verses in Proverbs that say exactly that. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7 says, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs 16, verse 6 says, by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. So the wise then, if that's the right interpretation, the wise are not cautious merely in that they fear the things that might go wrong and therefore act carefully. That's not what being wise looks like uh, in a biblical sense. They are cautious primarily because they fear the Lord. That's the fear that constrains them, the fear of the Lord, because they know that they are accountable to God. And that's why they turn away from evil, not because they fear the circumstances or are anxious for what might happen, but because they fear the Lord. Uh, in contrast, the fool is reckless and careless. Uh, the word reckless literally means to overstep or transgress something. And the word careless literally means to trip and fall. So this, this is a very vivid image here. The fool has no fear of God. He's complacent. He's secure in himself. And so he confidently oversteps God-given boundaries. And as they do that, he, he, as, in ignoring that no trespassing sign, he transgresses things. He falls. He trips and falls in headlong into trouble. Uh, and then verse 17 continues that to fill out that picture of the simple person. A man of quick temper acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. Now this verse combines two various uh, kind of uh, aspects of fools, um, yet denounces them all the same in the same category of foolishness. So first, it talks about a man of quick temper. A man of quick temper acts foolishly. This person has a short temper, a short fuse. He is unrestrained and explodes onto others. Uh, and, and in doing so, they do incalculable damage to others and themselves. Um, Jewish rabbis often use the image of a, a kettle, a boiling kettle, uh, to explain the way anger 
uh, inflicts damage to oneself. Uh, they said, when the kettle boils over, it overflows its own size. So likewise, a man of quick temper acts not only maliciously toward others, but also foolishly because he hurts himself in the end. Uh, and the short-tempered person uh, uh, is, is one type of fool. The second type that a, a foolishness seen here is a man of evil devices. It says in, it's, contrast, it's a contrast really from the short-tempered person because a man of evil devices is self-restrained. He keeps a tight rein on his temper, but for the purpose of doing evil, for the purpose of manipulating others, for the purpose of getting his way. He is the cold-blooded killer, uh, and he is a schemer. He's cunning, and that's to be contrasted with the wise who is shrewd and prudent. Being shrewd and being a schemer are not the same. Uh, both the short-tempered person and the schemer, though they behave very differently, the uh, Bible says they're both foolish because neither of them lives carefully under the watchful eyes of God. So that's what personal carefulness looks like. Let's look at then verses 19 to 24, which uh, focus specifically on what the life under God's watchful eyes look like socially and economically, uh, socioeconomic carefulness. It might seem for a little while uh, like the man of evil devices who take advantage of others and will rise through the ranks in society. And that does happen as Proverbs itself admits. But verse 19 says, The evil bow down before the good the wicked at the gates of the righteous. So this is speaking of ultimate divine justice. The evil men who seek to make others bow down to them will end up bowing down before the good. The wicked who sought to rule over others and judge others will themselves be instead ruled and judged at the gates of the righteous. So even though this might not be immediately true in your experience, it will ultimately be true in God's perfect Timing is what this Proverbs, proverb reminds us. A morally upside-down universe that we live in at times will be made right, right side up again. Uh, but in the meanwhile, sometimes the wicked do prosper. They do gain prominence by their prosperity. And so verse 20 says this, The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. This is a very realistic observation about human nature and relationships. The poor in view here are not those who are impoverished due to God's judgment for their wickedness. And as I've said several times throughout our series in Proverbs, the word poverty is used consistently in a negative way uh, as God's judgment on the, on the wicked. However, the word poor is used consistently in a positive way uh, to refer to those who are, uh, who are poor because of circumstances outside of their control, because of injustice. Uh, and and th- on those people, God shows special care and compassion. And so this, that's the poor that is in view here. So even though they are not morally reprehensible, it says the poor is disliked even by his neighbor. This neighbor, this person who lives nearby, who should, of all people, like the poor man, should be able to relate to this poor man, should be able to care for this poor man because he is his neighbor. Even he despises the poor man. And the implication is that the poor person is disliked by his neighbor because he is poor. Lack of money leads to lack of friends. In contrast, the rich 
has many friends. We use the term gold digger, right, to describe friends like this. When a woman marries a rich man for no other reason than his wealth, when a man befriends another in order to benefit from his wealth and privilege, we call them gold diggers. Their so-called relationships are not relational, but transactional. It's about the money in the end. And because of people like this, the rich, even when they are morally reprehensible, has many friends. This is a descriptive and not a prescriptive proverb. It's describing what is, what's the reality, what happens. It's not telling us to snub the poor and cozy up to the rich. And lest we misunderstand it that way, Solomon adds a qualifying proverb in verse 21. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. This proverb is structured as an incomplete parallel. Um, so the first half speaks of uh, despising one's neighbor, but the second half speaks of being generous to the poor. So it's not exactly this, the parallel. It's what they call incomplete parallelism. Parallelism. And when you come across that kind of parallel structure, we have to use the content of each half to kind of balance and fill out the picture of the other. Uh, and because scripture often uses that, uh, that method to say a lot more poetically than what's actually written on the page. So if we use each half to fill in the details of the other half, verse 21 says, whoever despises his neighbor because he is poor is a sinner. But blessed is he who is generous to the poor because he is his neighbor. That's how you fill out that, that parallel structure. So if we despise a neighbor because he is poor, we sin because we are not loving our neighbor as ourselves, as scripture commands. Our poor neighbor might not be able to return any of our favors. He may not benefit us in any tangible way. He may have no clout in society and therefore may be the object of people's scorn, and because they are powerless, they may have no recourse, and they may not be able to retaliate when we take advantage of him, and yet we must not take advantage of him. We must not despise our neighbor. Um, Further theological rationale for this is given later in verse 31, but for now, Scripture calls us to be generous to the poor by the simple reason that he is our neighbor. God has placed us near them to see their plight and suffering. God has placed us near them and provided for us so that we might supply their need. And that poor, doesn't, that poor person doesn't need to be especially deserving of our generosity. He doesn't have to have a squeaky clean background. He doesn't have to be well-dressed and well-spoken. That he is our neighbor is enough according to this proverb. Verses 22 to 24 add further motivation to be generous toward our poor neighbor. Verse 22 says, Do they not go astray who devise evil? Those who devise good meet steadfast love and faithfulness. Uh, the word devise is repeated twice in these verses, uh, in this verse to emphasize the importance of intentionality, of deliberation, planning. The word devise is sometimes translated engrave or forge and it refers to kind of the work of artisans and craftsmen. And so it, it's very much a, a, a word that implies care uh, and careful planning. 
There are, of course, some evil and some good that people do without deliberate planning. But there are some evil deeds and some good deeds that only happen after premeditation that require careful planning. So it's telling us we have to make concrete plans for doing good. Those who despise the poor are devising evil. They have already made up their mind that the poor neighbor is not worth their time and money and effort. They are devising evil. On the other hand, those who are generous with the poor neighbor devise good. They have made plans to befriend the poor neighbor. They have made plans uh, to, and they have resolved to supply their need. They have made plans to do so. They have brainstormed ways to most constructively and lovingly provide for their needs. Being generous to the poor neighbor requires planning and work. But it's still worthwhile because those who devise evil will stray from the blessed path of God. But those who devise good will stay on God's path and therefore meet steadfast love and faithfulness. Those are two attributes that throughout Scripture are most often attributed to God. Uh, In Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7, when God reveals himself to Moses and Moses and Israel, he says that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love, loving kindness. It's it's referring to God, the unmerited favor and the unchanging commitment that God shows toward his chosen people. The word faithfulness refers to God's uh, reliability, the firmness of his character, that he never changes. He's always true to himself. And so then both words, steadfast love and faithfulness, highlight God's unchanging loyalty toward his people. And so then those who kindly meet the needs of the poor on his path of life will be met by the steadfast love and faithfulness of God on that same path. And in verses 23-24, Solomon elaborates on, this, on the importance of making concrete plans and following through. It says in verses 23-24, In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. So toiling is hard, uh, but there is in the end profit, right? The wise who do honest, hard work will be crowned with wealth in the end, uh, in the normal uh, working of things. In contrast, those who engage in mere talk and spew out folly will end up in poverty. So he's using an economic, Solomon is using an economic proverb here uh, to tell us to put our money where our mouth is. It's a rebuke to people who are all talk and no action. Merely saying that you intend to do good to your poor neighbor isn't enough. You must devise good, make concrete plans, and take action in being generous to the poor. Uh, In the same way that hard work is met with profit, so likewise being generous to the poor will be met with steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. Uh, And verse 24 matches verse 18, and together bracket this subunit. Verse 18 said, The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. Verse 24 is that the crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. That's what it looks like to have socioeconomic carefulness living under the watchful eyes of God. And then in verse, starting in verse 25 and going through chapter 15, verse 4, Solomon expounds on what godly carefulness looks like in the political and legal realms. Uh, and he says in verse 25, A truthful witness saves lives. But one who breathes out lies is deceitful. 
In the court of law, truth-telling is a matter of life and death. A witness who tells the truth can ensure that the innocent person is not condemned and that the guilty person is condemned only uh, uh, and, and, and that the guilty person is condemned. But if one lies, uh, it is deceitful and it is treacherous uh, because instead of saving lives, you can in fact destroy lives. It's not a trivial matter to lie in court because it's not an abstract decision. Rather, it's a decision that has consequences in the real lives and livelihoods of people. And so then even when it is to their disadvantage to tell the truth, even when it makes that person look bad, the witness, a good witness, a true witness, is to speak truthfully. Even when the witness knows that he is more credible than the person on trial by the virtue of their social standing or people's biases, the truthful witness will courageously and conscientiously tell the truth because they live carefully under the watchful eyes of God. And in doing so, they save lives. And so then the way we act and speak in life is not a drill, is what Proverbs is telling us. It's a matter of life and death, which this, this passage keeps on emphasizing. So verses 26 to 27 continue that thought, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. So the fear of the Lord, that's another way to put living carefully under the watchful eyes of God. One personally gains a strong confidence. And he finds life for himself, secures a safety for himself. But not only that, he says that he will provide refuge for his children. Living carefully under watchful eyes of God has generational consequences. Uh, and then on top of that, in general, he says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Uh, it provides life not only to oneself, to others, like a fountain that bubbles forth with water, life-giving water. Uh, it nourishes others with life-giving wisdom. And then, uh, in, in an interesting turn, verse 28, Solomon addresses rulers specifically. And in doing so, leaders generally, of the particular responsibility that rests on them to be this life-giving fountain for others. And verse 28 says, In a multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without people a prince is ruined. So by definition, uh, a king is someone who rules over others. Since without people, he would have no kingdom and he would be ruined. He would not be a king. And in order to ensure that he has a multitude of people, he must become a fountain of life by living carefully under the watchful eyes of God. Now, this truth is confirmed by verse 29. It says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. The word great uh, in great understanding and the word multitude in multitude of people, they are the translations of the same Hebrew word. And so it connects those two verses, 28 and 29. So then if you were to to play on that more uh, obviously, it says in the numerousness or in the greatness of people is the glory of a king. And whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. So the implication is this. Do you want to gather people around you instead of scattering them? Do you want to be a great leader? Do you want to rule over a great people? Well, then gain great understanding, which is found in living carefully under the watchful eyes of God. 
Greek philosopher Aristotle once said, he who has never learned to obey cannot be a good commander. Uh, there are people who want to lead, want to teach, want to exercise authority and rule over others, but who have not learned humility, who are incapable of submitting to and following others because they think too highly of themselves. They're always dissatisfied under other people's authority because they always believe they could do better. They squirm impatiently when others are teaching, but beam excitedly when they themselves are teaching. Such people cannot lead because they will lead selfishly and for vain glory rather than the good of the people that are under their charge. Such people can't lead because they are incapable of listening and therefore will not heed wise counsel from others. They will not benefit from perspectives that differ from their own because they think too highly of their own opinions. And this principle is especially important when it comes to following and submitting to God. Only those who display great understanding of the fear of the Lord, only those who live under the watchful eyes of God are fit to rule over a multitude of people, a great people. A good ruler understands that he is first and foremost under authority, accountable to God and under his authority. And this great understanding is what makes, one, makes a person more patient. It says in verse 29, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. When we live carefully under the watchful eyes of God, we recognize that there is someone in charge above us. And because of that, we don't need to panic and act hastily. We have self-control because we know that God really is in control. So the expression, slow to anger outside of Proverbs, exclusively is used to describe God. God is slow to anger. So being slow to anger is not a natural characteristic of simple humans. Rather, it is a divine attribute, uh, and we are to imitate this. So then, when someone displeases us or offends us, we don't need to make that displeasure known immediately and impulsively, because, uh, as the scribes here, a hasty temper uh, exalts folly. Hasty temper is literally shortened breath. It's a vivid description of how people behave when they're agitated and angry, just short breaths. It's a hasty temper. That's what that refers to. Uh, and it says, in contrast to that, in verse 30, it says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Once again, this is not just, uh, this is a matter of life and death, living carefully under the watchful eyes of God. And a tranquil heart is a heart that is satisfied in God, a heart that is entrusted to God. And because of that, it's a heart that is at rest. And that kind of heart gives life to one's own flesh. But in contrast, envy makes the bones rot. A heart that is dissatisfied with God and the lot that God has given. Because of that, discontentment complains and envies and distrusts God. And because of that, is beset with anxiety. And this makes one's own body weak to disintegrate uh, and this living carefully under watchful eyes of God affects the way a person deals with the poor as well 
Uh, we saw this early in verse 21, that we were commanded to be generous to the poor. But verse 31 now gives us further theological rationale for that command. It says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. So when you oppress a poor man, this is saying you insult the God who created him. It's a powerful teaching. Uh, in 2016, uh, there was a, uh, you guys know Dutch master Rembrandt. Uh, he, one of his paintings entitled now The Unconscious Patient uh, was discovered in a basement in New Jersey uh, when adult children were uh, clearing out their family home after their parents' death. They discovered a Rembrandt painting. Uh, in a basement. Uh, the, the, oil, the oil painting, however, was discolored. It was flaking. Uh, and it looked totally unremarkable after years of uh, disintegration in the damp basement. And, and in spite of all of that, an art collector purchased it for $1.1 million at an auction uh, and went through the painstaking process of restoring it to its original beauty And now it's in its rightful place, touring the world's most famous art museums. And why is that? When professionals lay their eyes on that painting, it didn't matter to them that it was rotting, that it didn't matter to them that it was discolored, it didn't matter to them that it was flaking, it didn't matter to them that it looked worthless, because they knew whose work it was. No matter what condition you find it, and if you find a Rembrandt, it's worth millions. Likewise, if you meet a human being created in the image of God, doesn't matter how old or frail that person is, it doesn't matter how poor or pitiable that person is, it doesn't matter how disenfranchised and powerless that person is, It doesn't matter what that person's racial or cultural background is. It doesn't matter whether this person is male or female. It doesn't matter how battered this person is, how oppressed this person is, how sick or disfigured this person is. This person is priceless because they're created in the image of God. They are the signature masterpiece of the greatest master craftsman. That's the reason. For this reason, he was generous to the poor, generous to the needy, honors God himself. And those who honor God will ultimately be rewarded. Verse 32 says, The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. Verse 26 and 32 both speak of the refuge to describe the heritage of the wise. Living under the watchful eyes of God is not an onerous burden. Rather, it is like a refuge. Something that secures us, protects us, helps us. In the end, it will lead to eternal refuge even beyond death. That's what verse 32 suggests. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, through his own evil doing. But the righteous finds refuge in his death. Even in his death, the the, the righteous will find a refuge. In verses 26 to 32, if you scan it again, Solomon uh, spoke of how the ruler 
should live righteously, carefully under the watchful eyes of God. And then starting in verse 33, he focuses on how the subjects of that ruler should live uh, with the cares, with care of their own. And he begins by enjoining wisdom to all of us. In verse 33, it says, Wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding, but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. This is an invitation to learn wisdom. Uh, first and foremost, wisdom resides in the heart of a man of understanding. So a man like King Solomon, that's the implication. Wisdom stays there. It makes a permanent dwelling there. And so the implication is that we should listen to such people, listen to the Proverbs. Uh, and that's not all. Wisdom makes itself known even in the midst of fools. So wisdom is not only for kings like Solomon, it's for us all. And we saw in the personification of wisdom in chapter 1, chapter 8, and chapter 9, that wisdom is not this high-browed elitist that only caters to the brightest and most prominent, prominent among people. She invites all comers. She calls out to the simple. All who are willing to humble themselves and learn can come and gain wisdom. And so it is. It says, even in the midst of fools, wisdom's call can be heard. And so then the invitation is for us to to heed her call, leave our folly behind, and let wisdom rest in our hearts also. Verse 34 continues that exhortation, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Now, just as the king should be concerned with righteousness, so also the whole nation should be concerned with righteousness. In God's estimation and in His ultimate justice, it's not deft political maneuvering, forging international alliances, or even military prowess, or even economic prosperity that ensures a nation's security or exalts a nation. It's not those things, ultimately speaking. It is righteousness that exalts a nation. Conversely, sin is a reproach to any people. If you read the Bible and if you study history, you know that every empire eventually falls. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21 says that God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. The United States of America, too, will fall. And when it does, whatever the immediate causes might be, the ultimate cause will be moral degeneration. The ultimate cause will be injustice and unrighteousness. The ultimate cause will be the lack of humility before God. So not only the king, but all the subjects must preoccupy themselves with doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with their God, as it says in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And verse 35 says, A servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath falls on one who acts shamefully. The person who serves the king should live also carefully under the watchful eyes of God. His service should be characterized by competence, wisdom, and integrity. Just as sin is reproached to the whole nation, the servant's shameful acts will incur the wrath of his master, his king. But even the best of servants will incur the wrath of the sovereign sometimes. And so chapter 15 verses 1 to 4 teaches the art of speaking carefully in such situations. It says in verse 1, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Whether the king's wrath is justified or not, 
the servant should not retaliate in kind with a harsh word, because doing so will only stir up the anger of the king. Alternatively, a soft answer turns away wrath. This is the art of de-escalation. If you live or work with someone who has a short temper, getting into a shouting match with them is not going to improve your life. A soft answer turns away wrath. A ticking bomb needs to be diffused, not smashed. It will lead to more destruction. A soft answer turns away wrath. Verse 2 continues, The tongue of the wise commands knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The person who answers softly commands knowledge or adorns knowledge, beautifies knowledge. He makes the truth. He makes a wise decision attractive to the hearer. The wise person does not use his tongue as a sledgehammer to bludgeon others into submission. Rather, with it, he adorns knowledge. With it, he beautifies, commends knowledge. And that's contrasted from the mouths of fools that pour out folly. There is no restraint whatsoever. Like a breached dam, fool opens his mouth and pours out folly. But the kind of restraint that's displayed by the wise person is only possible, as we've been seeing over and over again, for those who live carefully under the watchful eyes of God. So it says in verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. In his small book on anger, uh, biblical counselor Ed Welch uh, writes that sinful anger is essentially atheistic. We don't often realize this, but when we get angry, sinfully angry, and lash out at other people, uh, we're angry at God. We're saying, God, you have no idea what kind of injustice this person or this ruler or this nation is putting me through. We're saying, God, because you're not doing anything about it, I have to take things into my own hands and get angry and make this right. And this is why Exodus, in Exodus chapter 16, verse 8, when the people of Israel complain against Moses and Aaron for not giving them bread and meat in the wilderness, Moses responds this way, The Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against Him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. This is why in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, when the nation of Israel asks Samuel, their leader, for a king, an alternate ruler, to rule over them like the other ancient Near Eastern nations, God says to Samuel, in all that they say to you, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. This is why sinful anger is always directed in the ultimate sense against God. That's why it's necessary for us to remember this truth that the eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. The evil and the good represents a complete range. It means that God's eyes are everywhere and He sees everything. There is no sin or injustice that comes, that's committed against you that has escaped God's notice. His justice might not satisfy your desire instantly, but His justice is real, it is inescapable, and it is exacting. And it's for this reason that we can respond to a wrathful person with a soft answer, knowing that God is at the scene, knowing that God sees, 
knowing that God is working out His plan patiently and that He is slow to anger. And so verse 4 concludes, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. In this fallen and broken world outside of the Garden of Eden, a gentle tongue is like the tree of life in that original paradise that humanity has been cut off from. It brings healing rather than destruction. It leads to eternal life. This passage has been speaking repeatedly of the fact that wisdom is a matter of life and death. Right? Chapter 14, verse 27 said, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Verse 30 of chapter 14 said, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. Now, chapter 15, verse 4 says, A gentle tongue is a tree of life. Now, these are all glimpses that foreshadow the ultimate deliverance from death itself that comes through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Because the reality is we have all been careless. Personally, socioeconomically, politically, legally, we have all been careless. We have all at times spurned the fear of God and lived for ourselves. We've all at times been hasty and short-tempered. We've all at times taken advantage of others for our selfish gain. And yet, even though we have been fools, there is a wise man who offers us wisdom who can still give us this eternal life. Because 1 John chapter 5, verse 6 says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Water likely represents the life-giving water of the Spirit that flows from Jesus. And blood represents the sin-cleansing blood poured out by Jesus on the cross. And that's why throughout his ministry he says in John 4 to the Samaritan woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water walling up to eternal life. Jesus is the ultimate Sage, the wise person who, by living carefully under the watchful eyes of God, gives eternal life to others. And Jesus imparts this life-giving water first by living a life of perfect obedience. He never said a false word. He always lived under the watchful eyes of God. He never said or did anything that he did not see his father himself doing. But in spite of this, He died the death of sinners on the cross, not because of his sins, because he had no sin, but for our sins, for the sins of his people, out of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, his covenant loyalty to his people. And through Jesus, that cross, that hideous tree of death, becomes the beautiful tree of life that gives eternal life, and Jesus' blood is, becomes a cleansing fountain in which we may wash away all of our sins. That's what we were singing earlier this morning. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. So let's remember Jesus this morning. Remember Christ, the one greater than Solomon, the ultimate sage who revives, who revives us by the water of his spirit and who restores us and cleanses us by his blood. And as we look to him and as we are revived by him, we now too may live carefully under the watchful eyes of God 
and point the watching world to the eternal life found in Christ alone.